This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is March 3rd, 2021. And we're talking with Alberto La Madrid about the recent massive failure of the Texas electrical grid and what lessons we should learn from it. Dr. La Madrid holds the class of 61 professorship in economics and is principal investigator on an interdisciplinary faculty team at Lehigh University's Institute for Cyber Physical Infrastructure and Energy that last year was awarded $2.5 million in funding by the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy of the U.S. Department of Energy. The funding supports the development of a framework and platform for asset and system risk management that can be incorporated into current electricity system operations to improve economic efficiency. And we'll be talking about that some today. Welcome, Dr. La Madrid. Thank you, sir. The massive power outages that occurred in Texas in mid-February left millions of homes and businesses without heat, electricity and water for several days, and the death toll related to the harsh winter storms and the outages they caused are still being calculated. What convergence of factors caused such a large-scale failure of the Texas electrical grid? Thanks, Jack. I think that that's a very good question. So there were a number of events that actually happened and created this sequence of cascading uh, failures that occurred in Texas. Uh, you can call this relatively high impact, low probability events. Um, but if we want to start from the very beginning, the triggering events was the fact that there were very low temperatures beyond expectations uh, and that they were set for a sustained period of time. Uh, this created uh, another set of dominoes falling. Like the first one that I would say is that um, the electricity system has very limited response in terms of the demand. Okay, so like what happens is that even if there's going to be a number of events happening, like for example, the fact that the temperatures are very low and people are going to be requiring more power in order to, for example, heat their houses, um, they really don't know, they don't have too much visibility about what is happening at the system level. In that sense, uh, a lot of people may be putting their thermostats at a level that is comfortable. Uh, and you could think that when you start adding all of that demand, uh, you may end up with a much higher uh, level that you would uh, have if you were, for example, in like normal situations. So like in that sense, um, if, for example, the, each one of the individual households dial back just a little bit the temperature. So let's say that instead of like putting it at 75 Fahrenheit, they put it at 60 Fahrenheit. And that was done over a generalized uh, number of areas, right? So like many cities. Mm -hmm. uh, that could have helped prevented the situation. But because uh, demand is not very responsive, part because of the design, uh, households and different consumers, they didn't have access to this information. Uh, second, there were a number of outages on the supply side. So what happens with Texas is that it's a system that it's uh, relying still uh, very much on uh, natural gas. And uh, a lot of the infrastructure is not winterized. So what occurs is that imagine, for example, you're going to be a natural gas plant that is going to be uh, generating, but you're not going to be having enough gas coming in. 
uh, mostly because uh, by regulation, this gas is prioritized for human purposes. So you send that gas, like we use gas for both uh, heating our houses and for generating electricity. You send gas to households or to centers that actually need it in order to start heating. But then you end up with um, a lot of households uh, that like may not have the gas heating. They are gonna be using electricity heating. Uh, you end up with uh, generators that actually are not gonna be having access to that natural gas. Uh, and therefore they're not gonna be able to produce. So like that was one of the parts. There's also a lot of publicity regarding failures that happen in uh, wind energy. And that occur in fact, like uh, wind blades were not able to produce. There were even outages in terms of uh, nuclear plants, uh, which are like what we call base load, like in the sense that they are relatively reliable. But because of these conditions, um, there was a lot of freezing water that could not be used in order to start cooling the nuclear reactions. And therefore some portion of the supply went out. So like that would be a second uh, reason, like the uh, supply side. Um, it's, uh, all, it was also uh, under a lot of stress. The third one is in general, this, all of these uh, design interactions that are occurring. Like I mentioned already, the fact that the natural gas is prioritized for certain uh, events. There were a number of um, like other things that occurred. Like for example, they, there's gonna be a spike in prices. Uh, and this in certain cases is gonna be leading some generators unable to like cope up with those situations. Uh, and there's gonna be um, a number of uh, other, like for example, uh, the fact that the many households, so Texas has been uh, increasing in population during the last decades. And historically, like uh, the way that the new stock of houses was being developed was using much more electric heating. Um, so because of that, in many cases, like they were using uh, a lot of electricity. In many cases, these new houses, because they are rarely exposed to these kind of situations, they were not completely uh, insulated. Like they were not properly insulated for these kind of conditions. Um, and therefore like people sometimes, since they don't have the heating, they start using, let's say the oven, they open the door of the oven and that creates even further demand. Um, so the accident of like the way that these uh, assets were, um, again, like new assets were entering into the system creates this, this number of events. You talked about the, um, the, the harsh weather that hit um, with temperatures lower than um, a lot of people expected. And we've been hearing this phrase, uh, black swan event popping up in news coverage all over the place. Uh, in regard to the Texas power outages with the meaning that the, the weather conditions were so highly improbable that they couldn't have been foreseen. And I wonder from your perspective, uh, how foreseeable was what happened in Texas last month? In general, it was a difficult situation. So like, uh, like I have heard about uh, colleagues that are in Texas and they've seen that like, um, like there's uh, temperatures that were extremely low and like the people that have been living there for 30 years, they never see them at this uh, level. So like, it's something that like was beyond expectations again. Um, and I think that that's what really puts you in trouble. On the other hand, like one thing that actually occurred exactly 10 years ago, so in February of 2011, Mm -hmm. uh, there was also another cold spell in Texas and around 60 power plants went offline. Um, there were some people that actually had some outages and similar, like it was not as widespread as the one that happened now. 
but you could argue that um, there's been an other kind of call events. Actually, in the last decade, we have had at least five of these events. Uh, we are here in Pennsylvania and here um, uh, PJM, which is the system operator for our region, uh, had a similar event in 2014. Um, there were some stresses in the system, like around 22% of the capacity was not available back then. Uh, but um, so like overall, I would say that it is a rare event. I think that like with climate change, with the weakening of the, the Gulf Stream and like a lot of the, like what is happening in many other regions, like actually Madrid has had some snow uh, in February, which is relatively rare as well. We may have to reevaluate what is a black swan, right? Like it's, a, it's rare, but like these kind of events may start occurring much more often. Um, and in the case of electricity, usually the requirement is that you should be able to withstand like the uh, regulation is like one day in 10 years. Uh, so technically we're on the 10 year mark for the case of Texas and they, the entity in charge of this is called the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. Um, so they're actually subject to this kind of regulation, but like we'll see if like maybe with the, uh, more frequent events, we're gonna have to start reevaluating what these criteria are. And looking at Texas specifically, it is kind of a, um, not not rare, but unique in the lower 48 states as the one state that operates its own electrical grid independently from the federal government. Now, there's been a lot of debate over this, whether that was a contributing factor to the outages, um, whether their independence um, ultimately would, would not have made any difference because the, the harsh weather was um, blanketing the country at the time and it wasn't like other regions um, necessarily had extra supply they could have sent their way anyways. But, so I'm just wondering, what's your view on um, the role, if any, that the independent system in Texas played in what happened? I do think that it played a role. So, like, you know, it seems to me that if you had uh, more interconnections, maybe the extent of what we have seen would have been lower, right? Like, you know, like, I don't think that, uh, as you pointed out, there were a lot of uh, other regions around. So, like, the Southwest uh, Power Pool, SPP, which is just above Texas uh, geographically, um, they also had some outages. Like, so in Oklahoma, they were having some issues. So it is possible that in certain, uh, like if you are under these uh, circumstances and you, even if you were still connected, um, like much more heavily connected, um, you would be having some trouble. Uh, so Texas is generally uh, isolated and like this comes down to um, the, back in 1935, there was something that was called the Federal Power Act uh, and that gave the federal government the authority to regulate um, the electricity sales between states. ERCOT um, actually was created and they, they starts, the genesis of ERCOT started in the 1970s. And from the beginning, they didn't, well, they tried to avoid uh, having some federal oversight. Uh, they are fiercely independent. Uh, so because of that, like probably they have limited the number of connections. It's not that they're completely independent. So like, actually there's a, a number of uh, high voltage DC lines. Um, so this basically allowed to start connecting point to point. There's also an interconnection with Mexico. Uh, and in these situations, actually, they were not being used. Probably we would have seen less of an impact. Uh, it is unlikely that we have completely um, avoided what happened. And in general, you see that this was uh, relatively unexpected. 
Uh, so because of that, like the, the operators did the best that they could given the system that they had, right? So like in this uh, situation, if they had had more interconnections, maybe you will have seen less, but it's unlikely that you will have completely avoided the situation. Now you touched on, um, you know, a couple of the, the main sources um, and that were part of the uh, problem with the, with the grid being uh, natural gas and nuclear power going offline to some extent uh, as the storm hit. And one of the things that's also been generating a lot of discussion is, um, you know, some people in Texas initially, you know, were blaming uh, their move to some green energy as the reason that it didn't work and that, you know, wind in particular did not um, fare that well. So I'm wondering, what, what are the main sources? What is that mix of energy sources in Texas look like? And were there any of them really that fared well during uh, those storms? Texas actually planned for conditions that were worse than the ones that they saw. So like to give you an idea, the total peak of the system is 74 gigs and that happens in the summer usually. So Texas is what we call a summer peaking system and mostly because of air conditioning. The winter planning for this situation was actually set for 85 gigs. So actually they plan for a much higher demand than even the highest that they have seen in the summer. Uh, but the way that they thought that it was gonna be covered was mostly with what we call thermal capacity. And by thermal capacity, uh, I'm talking about uh, natural gas, oil, coal, things like that. So around 87% of those 85 gigs were gonna be coming to, uh, like they were gonna be supplied by thermal generators. Uh, and around 50% were gonna be coming from natural gas. Uh, regarding wind, like the, in the planning, those uh, 85 gigs that uh, Texas or ERCOT, which is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas was planning for, um, it was only 10 gigs, around 10% uh, that was gonna be coming from uh, wind and around 1% from solar. So in reality, the amount that was planned to start with uh, coming from solar, coming from wind and from renewable sources. Like solar is still very small. Uh, and wind like, has had a big penetration in the last decade. Uh, but uh, Aircool was not expecting that it was going to be very significant. Uh, it has received a lot of publicity. Like, you know, like, I think that, that was uh, like the governor talked about that. Like There was actually the, I think the governor of uh, neighboring states, like Wyoming most notably, that were talking about what well, we need some coal. Uh, in order to address some of these issues. Uh, I can tell you something like from personal experience. So like uh, I moved to this area in 2012 and that was the year that Hurricane Sandy occurred. Um, and after Hurricane Sandy, one of the things that uh, happened is that uh, a lot of these generators were requested, uh, like the generators in New York, the New York system, which is called the New York ISO. Uh, they were requested to have dual fuel capability. So what does that mean? that let's say that you have a certain interruption in the supply from natural gas, which was what we saw in Texas. Uh, you could switch to another uh, fuel and it's, uh, keep generating power, right? So like that was something that was implemented uh, in the New York ISO footprint. And Texas had some level of dual fuel capability, but to your question of like, how well did they fare? They were already across the board. So like in terms of the natural gas, that was one of the most effective. 
Uh, there's a still there. Actually, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is the regulatory entity, and NERC, like the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, they're going to be doing an investigation about uh, the details. But as of now, like around 20 gigs of uh, natural gas, this is the best estimate now, uh, was coming out of uh, coming offline. Uh, so that is a very significant amount. Coal was offline. Uh, wind, like around four gigs of what was expecting was offline. Uh, nuclear was offline. So like uh, it was across the board. I mean, there was a generalized uh, lack of supply in many of these resources. And we'll see, like, basically, this is going to be changing some of the practices. Like, there may be some requirements in terms of more uh, weatherization of the supply, like, you know, like the pipelines were having issues. Uh, and in those cases, like the generators were end up, ended up with um, a dry uh, supply, right? Like, you know, they wouldn't be able to generate electricity because they don't have natural gas. Now, I know one of your, your research areas is the intersection of energy and electricity economics. Uh, so I'm hoping you can help me and, and our listeners understand something that I know came as a shock to a lot of people is the uh, new spread that uh, in the weeks just before the, the winter storms hit, the price of wholesale electricity in Texas was just $20.79 per megawatt hour. And in the wake of the grid's failure, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, which operates the, the state's power grid, raised the price to the uh, cap astro you know, astronomically high of $9,000 per megawatt hour. And as a result, some of the fallout of that, I know just this week on Monday, the largest and oldest electrical cooperative in Texas, Brazos Electric Power Cooperative, filed for bankruptcy protection after it was hit with, I believe it was a $2.1 billion invoice from ERCOT. And more bankruptcies are almost sure to follow. So how does the price of electricity go from $20 to $9,000 per megawatt hour? And is there a way to prevent that in the future? Yeah, that is a really relevant question at this point. So to start addressing it, let me separate something here. So what happens in electricity is that we have a certain uh, market that is what we call the wholesale market. So the wholesale market is when a lot of these, uh, let's say, for example, Brussels Electric that you were talking about, mm -hmm. and some other entities, what we call load-serving entities. So weirdly enough, Electricity is one of those industries in which we refer to the demand as low. But these load-serving entities, actually, they participate in that uh, wholesale market. And those are the prices that actually are going to be skyrocketed. Uh, on the other hand, on the consumption side, uh, a lot of the prices that we observe are heavily regulated. So, for example, in the case of Texas, they have a public utility commission. And the rates that many people are going to be seeing are gonna be more average. They're gonna be basically depending on whatever was the average cost of provision over a period of time. The rates, uh, like whatever you're gonna be paying for your electricity at home is gonna be uh, reflective of that. So to give you an, a local example, uh, my electricity provider is Method. So I, I live uh, close to New Jersey, so like it, it's not PPL. Um, and the rate that I see variable is around seven cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, after I add all of the fixed uh, costs, so like, you know, like there's going to be costs from infrastructure, distribution, and things like that. Uh, there's going to be, it comes down to around 13 cents per kilowatt. 
in the case and um, 13 cents per kilowatt hour, like to put in context, like what you were talking about, $9,000 per megawatt hour, $9,000 per megawatt hour is $9 per kilowatt hour. Okay, so like here we're talking about between 13 cents and $9. Like that is the difference that we were seeing, uh, that we would see in that situation. Um, in the wholesale market, so not you, like neither most of the consumers are participating in the wholesale market, right? Like, you know, there's gonna be an intermediary entity that is the one that does all of this uh, buying. Uh, and in some cases, actually they also sell power. Um, so that entity supposedly, because it's not us, that we have a lot of behavioral biases, uh, they should be hedging those kind of risks. Um, the fact that we consumers are gonna be seeing those kind of prices, that may be down to the fact that in, in the case of Texas, actually people can choose who's gonna be their provider. And if you're gonna be choosing a provider whose rates are gonna be reflective of what is happening in the wholesale uh, market, you're gonna be seeing those spikes. So like, you, I don't know if in your case, I receive a lot of promotion that they say, move to this other provider. Like every state tends to have a, a default provider, uh, which uses some rates that are going to be based on the average. But then some are gonna be use, um, using these kind of like more uh, direct uh, rates. And they're gonna be automatically exposed to a lot of this uh, price uh, volatility. Um, I, like one of the first points that I mentioned at the very beginning is I do feel that like a lot of this, uh, like in many cases demand, they should be much more uh, exposed or they should be more aware of what is happening, right? Like because if you just have an average price, you don't know exactly what is happening in the overall system. And therefore you cannot start uh, internalizing those things. On the other hand, electricity is something that we need to provide. It's a utility, everybody should be protected. So what we can think about is that it is possible to design mechanisms, hedging mechanisms, or like risk coverage mechanisms that allow people that want to have those kind of signals to see them and still have some kind of like circuit breaker, let's say, that uh, for example, avoids having very high penalties, okay? So I do think that these kind of prices, that was, the market was designed to have those kind of high prices because the participant in the wholesale market used this as a signal of, for example, in the long term, the fact that I have such a high price means that me as a supplier should have all of the incentives to be available during those times, okay? Now, a big debate that has been happening in Texas is that this scarcity pricing was not very often during the last years. During the last 10 years, the $9,000 was not being hit very often. And that led a lot of the suppliers to, for example, the, um, defer or like not uh, like avoid taking some investments that would have been, like for example, some winterization would have been possible. And maybe some of these suppliers could be available and would have been taking advantage of those high prices. On the demand side, like a lot of these entities, they should have been covered, right? Like, you know, like I think that that's uh, one of the, as part of the design of the market, we always think that the low serving entities should have hedged some of these risks and they shouldn't pass it directly to the consumer, right? Like, you know, like consumers are not gonna be like most of the people, like I do this for a living, but most people don't, are not gonna be seeing uh, all the time what the prices are. 
but it is possible to design it in such a way that uh, consumers are going to be protected and still receive some of this information. So to give you an example, like in general, the way that we see these kind of signals is very coarse, right? Like, you know, we receive a monthly bill and then we see, oh, January, my electricity bill spiked up, but I don't know exactly from which day does it correspond. So if I had some of that information, I would be able to, for example, adjust my thermostat better or start doing other activities like try like to, for example, use electricity uh, at, at times that are not peak, like avoid doing my laundry now and doing it later. Um, at the wholesale level, I think that those prices are going to be remaining. Now, this is completely conjecture and my uh, crystal ball is as cloudy as anybody else's. Okay. Um, but we'll see that, uh, I, I do think that there's still probably going to be this kind of a scarcity pricing. There may be some pressure in order to have entities participating in these markets to be more hedged. This is a little bit reminiscent of what happened uh, 10 years ago, like a, a little over with the financial crisis, right? So like in many cases, the banks uh, that were suffering when we were in the last financial crisis. We were expecting that they were going to be hedged, right? But like in certain situations, actually, this was passed down to the consumers. So we'll see if there's going to be more discussion about some ways to cover uh, these kind of extreme events, uh, inform better consumers taking into account that like in many of uh, the instances, like the information comes down into the full notes of the contract into the small letter, uh, people sometimes uh, are inattentive to whatever they're going to be signing. So we really need like to put some protections in there and make sure that like the people, particularly uh, right now, there's a, a big concern about environmental justice, right? Like, you know, like people uh, being able to have affordable electricity, uh, which in certain cases, having low average prices means that you're going to be pushing suppliers to like maybe don't invest in this kind of capacity investments uh, that are relatively expensive. Now, it sounds like, and I had mentioned the uh, ARPA-E, uh, U.S. Department of Energy grant um, that the, the team you're part of at the uh, university's Institute for Cyber, Physical Infrastructure and Energy um, got that, you know, is to develop a framework and platform for asset and system risk management. Some of the things you've been talking about that can be incorporated into the current electricity system operations to improve economic efficiency. And clearly we're seeing the need for more economic efficiency in the system. So could you talk just a little about the, the grant and what it is that, um, who you're working with at the university and what, what it is that you're hoping to develop? Yeah, so uh, thanks for that uh, question. Like overall, I, as you say, like, you know, I think that this grant was uh, coming out of the need to improve the risk management in the system. Um, overall, like the system, it is amazing how well has it hold uh, in general, uh, given the fact that it has changed a lot during the last 20 years. So when these markets were originally developed, they were not uh, thinking that we were going to be having that much renewable energy. So because of that, a lot of the design features are based on suppliers that we can control. Right, but the moment that we start using much more renewable energy, as you know, like the, what we're going to be producing with wind energy, uh, nobody has to pay for the wind, so there's no cost associated to that. But we don't know whether it's going to be as windy as our models uh, predicted. So because of that, we ended up in a situation in which we're using market designs that were based on more controllable generation, uh, but our portfolio of generation has changed significantly. 
so this is a collaborative effort with uh, colleagues in uh, electrical engineering. So uh, my two colleagues are Chalini Kishore and Parben Kasarumatanian. Uh, and uh, this is a multi-institutional effort. So it's um, besides Lehigh, we have people from uh, uh, MIT uh, and we have uh, two national labs, which are part of DOE, so the Department of Energy. So the national labs are Argonne National Lab and Lawrence Lieberman. Uh, and our objective is exactly that, is to start coming up with better ways to handle the risk using tools from finance, using tools from banking uh, that allow to hedge this kind of risk. Now, overall, the fact that we're gonna be using much more uh, renewable uh, energy sources, which are intermittent, uh, means that we're gonna be dealing with overall risk every single day, right? So like, you know, in normal operation, even without this kind of extreme events, like even though this extreme event may become actually much more often, but day to day, we're gonna be dealing with much more intermittency. Uh, so we're gonna be looking at the uh, mechanisms in order to handle the risk during those uh, normal conditions. Uh, and when I, I say normal, quote unquote, in the sense that this is something that is gonna be closer to the center of the probability distribution. Uh, but then also we want to have risk management for those stale events, like the ones that are going to be rarer, that like maybe happen once every 10 years or every 20 years. Um, the methodologies in certain cases could be similar. They, like we adapt them in order to make sure that actually they are reflective of the overall uh, operation of the, mecha of the system. Um, but like, you know, like I think that, like there's there's a lot that we can learn over here. Like I typically say that whenever we're thinking about these large infrastructure systems, we're thinking about three parts. One is economics, right? Like all of these market designs, how do we adapt them to like changing conditions, changing portfolios, and changing priorities in order to decarbonize and do a, a transition to a low carbon economy. Uh, second is technological, right? Like, you know, like there may there may be some technological fixes more availability of storage, uh, like for example, uh, more HVDC lines, like high voltage DC lines that allow us to interconnect. Uh, there may be other forms of storage, like for example, like putting, if you have a surplus of uh, renewable energy in the middle of the night when nobody's using it, you're gonna start producing uh, other kind of like uh, energy storage forms, like for example, producing hydrogen and storing it. Uh, or like using thermal storage and uh, using that for uh, air conditioning services and for heating services. Um, and the last leg besides the technology is going to be all of these institutional arrangements, right? So like, how are we gonna be dealing with the risk? Like I mentioned you that Texas is fiercely independent and a lot of the institutions that have developed are uh, representative of those kind of preferences, like social preferences. Uh, so in that sense, like we should see if uh, there's maybe some uh, regulation that is going to be entering. Uh, I've seen lately a lot of push for, for example, more winterization, like weatherization in general. Uh, there's wind farms that are uh, operating much worse environments than the ones that we have here, uh, that, we, that we saw in Texas in particular. Uh, there's going to be a difficulty in the sense that there's big swings that happen there in temperature in a very short period of time. So there's, there's still going to be some regulation part and some technological part. Uh, but that's part of what we're working on. Like, you try like, to bring tools that uh, could be uh, having a, a real impact in the short term in terms of this risk management uh, in electricity systems taking into account those three aspects. And like the fourth leg of, the, of this uh, stool 
uh, making sure that there's affordability. There's uh, no reason why we cannot design these um, systems or these mechanisms in order to make sure that actually we, for example, cover uh, populations that we want, that we consider that they need some protections uh, or like that we provide people some choice uh, in order to decide, okay, if you enter into this kind of uh, contracts, how are you gonna be hedged, right? Because like at some point there may be a little bit of moral hazard in the sense that some people may sign up in, um, for some contracts that they don't fully understand and may expect to be bailed out or like some people may actually not even expect to be bailed out, but they never even foresee this kind of situation. Uh, so we need like to start coming up with better ways in passing this information through, making sure that people understand what they're signing up for uh, and that entities, like this is, this is not a failure of households. This is actually a failure of the design at the wholesale level. These load serving entities, they should have been uh, better protected. Uh, sometimes because it's, it's a utility, uh, it gets passed to the government. So there you go like with the uh, systemic risks that we're gonna be facing. Um, but that's, that's part of what we are trying to solve here. Great, and look forward to checking back with you uh, as, as this uh, uh, grant proceeds. Um, it's been fascinating, and I thank you so much for being here with us on Illuminate today. Thank you so much, Jack. I really enjoyed it. Dr. La Madrid also is a member of the Integrated Networks for Electricity Research Cluster and the Power from Oceans, Rivers, and Tides, or Port Laboratory at Lehigh. As I mentioned before, his interests lie at the intersections of energy and electricity economics, as well as complex dynamic systems and mechanism design. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Lehigh Business. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>